Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Pietro. So we're getting the big stars on the Paracast. We had Bud Hopkins last week. This week we have Nick Pope. And next week we'll have the Pope. The actual Pope? I don't know. I just said Really? I wonder if he believes in UFOs. Uh, He's got bigger fish to fry. I mean, believe in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Of course, we talked about the fact that the Vatican this year acknowledged that there may be life in outer space. There's definitely life in outer space. Gee, I didn't know that that question was still up for grabs. Well, the fact that they did this, of course, it gives it a higher degree of reality, a heightened sense of reality that the Catholic Church says that. But what about the other churches. What are you talking about? Why? I don't know. If you're Catholic, you certainly have to care about that. But also, what about the other religions, organized religions? How would they be impacted by visitors from elsewhere, whether that elsewhere is here, from another time frame, from another dimension, another planet? Hmm. To which I respond, bagels. Bagels. The Jewish people have always been in contact with extraterrestrial beings. That is where the Bialy and the bagel came from. Okay, so this is not something that Philip Corso delivered. It happened before Corso was even on this planet. He's not Jewish, so he has nothing to do with this. No, but he could have delivered bagel invention to some kind of kosher deli and said, this is a bagel from Zeta Reticuli. Would you produce it under your own name or something? Did you know that the uh, at Dunkin' Donuts, the donut holes are not actually the holes from the donuts? Did you know that? Talk about a conspiracy theory. Oh, the donut conspiracy. I thought that ranks with the conspiracy that we didn't land on the moon. What does that have to do with donuts? Well, I think they both basically have the same degree of credibility. The moon's made of cheese, not donuts. Limburger or green cheese? I don't know. Cheese. And there are no donuts that are made of cheese, but there are bagels that have cheese on them that are pretty darn good. It's true. I don't know what this has to do with the paranormal, but I don't know. It's around lunchtime and I'm hungry. Well, you know, coming up on a future show, you know, we have a special area of our forums called Your Personal Experiences Forum. With donuts or bagels? Well, we might even serve donuts and bagels when we do this, but we've seen hundreds of messages from listeners who have had very extraordinary personal experiences. And you know what? In a future episode, like the next Mm -hmm. week or two, We're going to have some of them on the show to talk about their experiences and to be questioned by our team of resident experts. We have experts? What are you talking about? Well, it'll be you and I. We're not experts. We're not. Experts in what? UFOs? I don't know. Strange experiences? There is no such thing as an expert. I'm not an expert. Are you? Well, resident near the wells. Well, that's not experts, though. You have to be specific and very explicit about these things, Gene. Otherwise... People will uh, will either get confused or get the wrong idea. Well, we could have people us. like Ritzman. He's an expert. Okay. In guitars. How about, say, uh, Kevin Randall or Stanton Friedman or someone like that? They're coming on the show to do a roundtable with us? I don't I don't think Stanton wants to come on the show anymore. You don't think so? He enjoyed well, after, the last time. With oh, it was actually, show. that was a good show. No, that's true. And, and I think it'd be really fun to have, let's see, Kevin Randall, uh, Stanton Friedman, can't have Paul Kimball anymore, Mac Tonys. And uh, Brother Theodore. Oh, he's dead. We can't have him on. Well, we can channel him. I can channel him. I often do channel him, actually. So we can make that so, number one. Well, I'll tell you what, number two. This is like the most ridiculous opening we've ever done. But you know what? We're going to stop the opening. We're going to get serious now. Because Nick Pope awaits us. Maybe we're awaiting him. Okay, I'll take six of one, (laughs) half a dozen of the other on the Powercast. (laughs) Donuts or bagels? I'm not in Kansas anymore.
in a world where UFO conventions are completely, utterly boring. Come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do something new. The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. It is reality. Cyrus David Bassett. David Biedney. Dr. William J. Byrne. David Hatcher Childress. Patricia Corbin. Richard Dolan. Bud Hopkins. Ellen Brognow. Michael Mannion. Melissa Reed. Jeff Ritzman. Giorgio Sukalos. <laughs> Jeremy Faney. And Farrier Duzo. Special President. By Combustion Motor Corporation. Masahiro Kahata. And the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth solution of truth. For more information and to order tickets, please visit www.cultureofcontact.com. <laughs> Once again, that's www.cultureofcontact.com. Card subject to change. You could be screwed financially. Probably not, though. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hey, neighbors. The easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Well, he's here with us, Nick Pope. And as some of you who read the New York Times know, he had an op-ed piece published there. And I think that's kind of a rarity. They didn't even accept the op-ed piece from Senator McCain. Do you feel blessed at all, Nick? Oh, absolutely, yes. It's always good to ease out the Republicans. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, a bit of politics. I, I guess I shouldn't be doing this so early in the, uh, the, the show, but no. We wait till um, the second half before we go into politics, you see. Okay, but no. To, to be fair, credit, a lot of the credit for that should go to Leslie Kane because she was very much somebody who, who kind of encouraged me to pitch that piece and, and get the commission. And I, I think, you know, the, there is that old saying, you know, two nations divided by a common language. And I was saying to Leslie Kane, well, why is this important? And she was like trying to impress on me, it's the New York Times, it's the paper record. If you can get a kind of serious, positive UFO piece in, in there, you know, it's, it's like unprecedented. So it was really her encouragement that I guess kept my foot on the pedal. 
Now, Nick, in looking at that op-ed piece, what was very telling were the uh, comments. There are, I believe, 87 comments that are associated with your piece, which uh, you took the stance of uh, framing this whole question of UFOs in the framework of air security. And, and, and I think that's obviously a very uh, useful tack to take. But in looking at the comments, what we see is that um, people tend to be very polarized on this issue, either essentially stating that you know, we shouldn't be wasting any time or resources on this question, on you know, that on one hand, and on the other hand, people saying, oh, yes, the aliens are here to help us, and we must acknowledge and embrace them right now. How do you feel about this polarization with regards to this topic? Well, I agree. I mean, I, I as you would expect, I did um, troll through the comments, and I was intrigued to see that one of them described this as the most courageous piece that uh, had been seen for a while, and another described me as a crackpot. So <laughs> I think that, that sums up that polarization quite nicely. Yes, I mean, it, it, it is an issue that polarizes people, and I don't think I can kind of do anything to affect that. That's just the way it is always going to be. I think uh, you, you're quite right. I, I deliberately played up, or not, not in a, in a sense of over-exaggerating, but I deliberately focused, shall I say, on the sort of air safety and national security issue. Because again, with, with my own beliefs on this to, to the fore, I actually thought, well, I'm not here to tell people what UFOs are, because actually I don't know what they are. But all I can say is that based on my own uh, background in this subject, which of course is British government and, and official research and investigation, my, my own belief is that there are important defense, national security and air safety issues here. I think we are over-dependent on radar data and particularly transponder data. I mean, I've spoken to numerous civil and military air traffic controllers, fighter controllers. And what they always say is, is that, um, well, you know, we're looking for aircraft. Uh, we're looking for something carrying a transponder and squawking, and, and then that's fine. We can categorize it. If, if it doesn't do that, we're not interested. Sometimes there are filter programs, computer programs, that, that actually filter out uh, radar data. And, of course, the, the tragedy of 9-11 was that, in a sense, once the transponders had been turned off, Mm -hmm. The aircraft was so difficult to track precisely because people, people's entire training kind of syllabus is, is configured on transponders. So that brings up an interesting question, Nick, a technical question. Uh, what you point out is really obviously deeply relevant, this issue of transponders. But looking at that, how useful then is any kind of radar information when talking about UFOs, given that to the best of our knowledge, no UFO has a transponder on it. What are your feelings about that? Well, you can still get radar data, of course, that's not transponder data. It's just looking at the primary returns. It's looking at exactly the sort of data that's normally filtered out um, mm -hmm. because people are so obsessed with, with transponders. Now, again, it comes back to certainly conversations that I've had with air traffic controllers and fighter controllers, and, and what they say is very interesting. They say things like, uh, oh, yeah, we see these um, radar returns from time to time. They do some interesting things in terms of speeds and maneuvers. And I say, well, what do you categorize them as? 
and they say to me things like, well, you know, we know that radar is not a perfect uh, science. It's, it's not a perfect um, instrument. Uh, you can get interference between two different radar systems. You can get various meteorological conditions, can give ghost returns. You can get software glitches. Um, what they said to me is that anything that doesn't look or behave like a conventional aircraft, our basic instinct is to write it off as anomalous propagation, software glitch, um, ghost in the machine, whatever. Okay, so it's one of those things, and there's no reason to explore it any further. Exactly. In, oh. in other words, bottom line, and, and you know, I, I know we're getting a little technical here, but the bottom line in layman's language is that if something on a, a radar screen doesn't look and behave like a conventional aircraft, chances are people won't really pay it any attention. And I think we're missing a trick there. Okay, now, that's an interesting thing, too. By not looking at these things or considering them separately as possible anomalous objects out there, they're not going outside saying, hey, can you see something in the same place as we see this bogey on the screen? Exactly, yes. I mean, and, and of course, radar visual sightings are, are absolutely priceless. Um, and there are certainly several of those in the British government's UFO files. There have been cases over the years where things have been detected on radar, aircraft have been scrambled or, or, or um, redirected. Uh, the pilots have then closed on these things. They've acquired them visually. Um, and, and that's exactly the sort of thing that, that I think whatever we believe that UFOs may or may not be, we should be interested in studying from a sort of scientific point of view. But no, you're quite right. We're not really getting to that radar visual combination anymore because if it doesn't behave like a conventional aircraft, no, not interested. Move on to something else. So it could be here, Nick, that a lot of very interesting sightings are being overlooked because we don't give those things the attention we used to give, say, back in the 50s and 60s. I mean, some of the hallmarks of UFO cases, and I don't know how far back you've studied, have been the combined radar visual encounters, especially reported by people like Major Donald Kehoe. Absolutely, yes. And now I think, to be fair, I think... Um, one of the difficulties, one of the reasons that we're in this situation is just the exponential rise of, of air travel and the, simply the number of aircraft uh, in our skies now as opposed to, say, back in the 50s and 60s. So it is difficult. But, I mean, I think it's a two-tier problem. The first problem is that the mindset of the air traffic controller is, well, if it, it doesn't behave like a conventional aircraft, there's probably just something wrong with the system. But it's worse than that. It's many, many times that air traffic controller won't even get to see that blip um, and evaluate that data because computer programs will filter it out before okay, he or she can right, right. That was an interesting point there. The fact is here is that you could just simply write some kind of algorithm that says, okay, if it doesn't have a transponder or fit in with this particular framework of information, it's gone. It's like a virus filter and, and for the computer. And that's exactly what happens. In many, many cases, um, air traffic controllers don't even see these things, so can't even bring to bear a little bit of human 
evaluation uh, precisely because because we do have such crowded skies and I can understand the reasons for this but these these um, anomalous returns these things that don't behave like conventional aircraft are filtered out by computers so they're not even looked at hmm. does that also mean that when you have situations where people see something in the sky that's within the range of radar and they say, well, we didn't see anything on the radar, and the reason is it's being filtered out by the computers. Yes. Now, I'm. this is still not my – I'm giving this to you in a sort of layman's perspective, not, not least because compared to, to some of the technical specialists in this, I'm, I'm – really not not a sort of expert you'd have to speak and i don't know if you've discussed this but uh, uh someone like john callahan of course who has a background with the faa obviously knows far more about uh radar and and uh such things as, as myself but yes uh that is a problem that is a big problem let's just backtrack a little bit nick and this is little bit of refresher for our audience who hasn't read much about you and that is how did you get involved in running the British government's UFO program? Well I had joined the Ministry of Defense here in the UK so effectively the equivalent of the DOD. I joined that back in 1985 and um, like the DOD, like many government and military organizations, you're expected to do a number of different tours of duty, uh, two or three years, and then you move on either level transfer or promotion. And I'd done a number of different jobs, and then out of the blue, in 1991, I was working in the Joint Operations Center as a briefer during the first Gulf War, um, the Persian Gulf War, and um, I had been working with somebody more senior than myself uh, who was quite impressed with my work, and he said, look, I know you're looking for a move. He said, after you've done this, uh, I have a vacancy. Would you like the job? And I said, what's the job? And he said, it's UFOs. And I think I... I <laughs> Probably <laughs> did a double take or smirk or something. I said UFOs, but uh, he, he said yes, and I said okay, I'll give it a go. Okay, did you think it was a blessing in disguise or some kind of a curse? Maybe somebody was punishing you for doing something bad. Now, also, I wanted to ask you in relation to public information: Is that what you did primarily, public information for the government? Well, uh, to answer the first question, no, I didn't think it was a, a, a curse because I respected this person and he was more senior than myself. And I think we had uh, established a good working relationship in the Joint Operations Center so that I, I, I knew this wasn't some sort of setup. I mean, I knew that people would probably make some kind of funny remarks on it and it would look a little odd on my personnel file but um, I thought no it sounded an interesting job and it was an opportunity to, to make a mark yeah so I, I, I accepted it quite willingly okay so once having gone in there what did you confront was it an organized agency was it something just to provide public information or to conduct real investigations because the feeling a lot of us had about project blue book in the usa is that it was just a publicity front they weren't really doing anything of any importance there so what was your reaction well i you know without wanting to kind of denigrate the work that i did actually i would say that the terms of reference that i inherited and uh, the way in which I conducted 
business on a day-to-day basis actually probably mirrored Project Blue Book, except it being Britain, we probably had less money and less resources. But essentially the brief was the same. The policy was to examine these UFO sightings, to take no position on what they may or may not be, but simply to investigate them to see if there was evidence of anything, any threat to the defense of the United Kingdom, any evidence to suggest anything of any defense interest. Uh, But that that in itself was interesting because when I said, well, what does defense interest, defense significance mean? It wasn't written down. So it it kind of meant whatever you wanted it to mean. Did you feel, Nick, that um, you were being given this mandate out of a sense of, how do I put this right? Uh, do you feel that the Ministry of Defense was getting pressure from the public, or do you feel it was getting pressure perhaps from, and I'm going to put on my conspiracy hat for a minute. Um, I'm just waiting for the sound of the conspiracy hat. Here yeah. we go. Go ahead. The thwunk. Was this something that they were doing in response to um, you know, sort of public demand, or do you feel at any point that there was some sort of a sub-organization inside the Ministry of Defense that perhaps was setting this up as some form of uh, distraction. No, I don't. I don't think so on that latter point. On on the issue of public, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I I, I worked for 21 years uh, for the British government, and when we wanted to ignore the public, we did. Right. <laughs> so, okay. You know, so we weren't we weren't following. An agenda. Having said that, I, I think when the media got hold of an issue, uh, the department was slightly more concerned. But generally speaking, uh, the MOD didn't particularly concern itself with what the UFO community thought or, or what what members of the public writing in thought. If we wanted to do something, we'd do it. If we didn't want to do it, we wouldn't. All right. Um, so there was a good degree of autonomy, essentially. Well, essentially, we were the. You know, we were we were government, and uh, yeah, particularly when I joined, um, I, I think people would possibly be quite surprised. We in Britain didn't have a Freedom of Information Act, um, and didn't come fully into force until about 2005. I mean, when I joined the MOD in 1985, the default position was say nothing, say nothing about everything, anything. It, it was a joke that um, you could be prosecuted uh, for, for saying what colour the carpet was. Now that would never really happen but it was indicative of the mindset, the default position which, which is you're dealing with an inherently secretive organisation and it doesn't volunteer anything. Mm-hmm. Well along those same lines in doing internal research did you ever run up into internal walls where you felt that uh, somebody was hiding something or somebody was essentially trying to cover up information and you felt that uh, you were not being given access to this information even though you were working from the inside? No, I didn't feel that. I mean, I, I've, I've heard this suggestion many times that, that maybe there was some, maybe I was just working for the public relations kind of organization. Maybe right. there was a sort of super secret UFO project undertaking its research unseen behind my back. I mean, my response is, of course, I can't prove a negative, but in terms of of my understanding, and again, as I say, I've been 21 years 
uh, I, I served 21 years in government. You know, I think I have a reasonable understanding of, of how the game is played. My understanding is that uh, your access to information is guided by two things. Firstly, the level of your security clearance, and secondly, what, what we call I'm not sure if, if you use this term too, but the need to know principle. Very Absolutely. much so. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Nick Pope joining us on the Paracast. If you go to nickpope.net, he has a website there that we've linked to from our homepage so you can see some of the things he's interested in. And we're covering his service for the British government and handling the British government's UFO project. Now, what level of clearance did you have? What was your need to know in relation to this? I mean, if you wanted to inquire as to whether there was any evidence that not only were UFOs external to us, but maybe spaceships or time travelers or anything like that, could you get involved in that? Or is it strictly they're a threat or not? That's the end of the story. Well, on, on specific questions about security clearance, that's not a, an issue that I can get into in any level of detail. Aside from saying that because I was recruited directly from the Joint Operations Center and, you know, had previously been dealing with a, a, a sort of war situation, I think without going into those specifics, I can perhaps hint that my clearance level was reasonably high um, to be working in a place like that. I don't mean to sound cryptic about this, and I'm not, not trying to be clever, but, um, you know, that's that's sort of background that I had. And on, on need to know, I, th I think I can be a bit more bullish on this and say, well, essentially, um, yeah, my the, the reason why I'm reasonably confident that I did have um, access to everything that I needed to is because I believe I had that so-called double whammy of a high security clearance, even though I can't obviously uh, discuss the specifics of that. But like I say, I'd just come off of working on, on the Gulf War and real-time war fighting stuff. Um, that combination of, of high security clearance and need to know. So of course I can't prove a negative, of course I can't prove, as some people suggest, that there was some sort of super secret 
shadow project working behind my back. But to the best of my knowledge, that wasn't the case. So you never had the feel here that there was information about UFOs that was being withheld from you? No. Now, that's a very interesting question. Um, the MOD, and, and actually this can be proven uh, by virtue of, of looking at documents that have been released here in the UK under the Freedom of Information Act, the MOD has consistently, over several decades, sought to downplay this subject and downplay their own involvement and interest in this subject. But having said that, whilst that might be described as sort of, you know, mildly dishonest, a bit of spin, whatever phrase you want to use, there's a very long sort of, you know, there's a very big difference between that and saying that there's, there's a cover-up and there's a conspiracy. I've not, no, to answer your question, I've not seen any evidence to suggest that, that some great truth about UFOs is being withheld from the public. I'm not one of these people who believes that there's a sort of spaceship in a hangar somewhere. You know, if there is, they didn't tell me about it. Uh, you know, I wanted to also ask you here, what about interaction with UFO investigations in other countries? We know that France has released information, others have too. The U.S. kind of likes to say they're no longer involved in it. So what were your experiences? Yeah, my terms of reference were very national and and in a sense that was quite frustrating because of course I always felt that this was a global phenomenon. Occasionally I liaised generally speaking through the embassies with other countries um, with Belgium for example because there were similarities between uh, some cases that we had in the UK and some cases that they had in Belgium in, in 1989 and 1990 involving large triangular-shaped uh, UFOs. I'm aware that the Italian government has, has been conducting investigations on this. The Spanish government's released some files. Uh, the Australians have been dabbling in this. Um, yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Um, but it is depressingly national in, in the way that this is handled. There's, there's no real coordination of this across uh, different countries. And I think that's a mistake. Well, let's get back to something you said a moment ago, Nick, which was that the uh, MOD sought to sort of downplay both the topic and their interest in it. How do you reconcile that with the fact that they had you working on this full time? And what do you think that means? Well, I wasn't full time on it. Even, even when I was doing this job, actually, I had some other duties as well and, and that's mm. interesting because it's enabled the MOD to push this this idea we didn't even have one person on this full time mm -hmm. now technically that's true what they omit to say is that while you know we had a very small core of, of people involved in this we had a very big reach I mean for example if I wanted radar data analyzed I would simply pick up the phone and uh, you know, within within two two to three minutes, I would be sat with an Air Force officer, and we'd be looking at radar data. If we had a photo or video, uh, again, there were technical specialists who could analyze and enhance the imagery. So you know, it's it's one thing to sort of say there isn't even anyone on this full time, 
but that's slightly dishonest and disingenuous because it, mm. it kind of you know masks the fact that whatever we wanted to do, we did. Whoever we wanted to speak to, you know, we engaged with them. What about interactions with the American military? I'm guessing that there had to be some level of cooperation, or or, or is that just an assumption? That was the most interesting thing of all. I remember very early in my tour of duty going to a training course, and I think there was a United States Air Force officer there. And, you, you know, as you do in the margins of training courses, you get speaking to people about their jobs, who you are, what do you do. And I said, I do this job. And he said, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I'm sure we must be doing the same thing. And I said, well, look, I'm having a little bit of difficulty establishing contact with my opposite number. Maybe you could, through the embassy or through your own contacts, um, turn something up. And he was like, yeah, sure, no problem at all. And then I got a call back a few days later, uh, no, we don't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Click. <laughs> the yeah, official line. Pretty much. Now, I mean, I, th I think you can have a whole debate about that and whether that's, you know, but even I doing this job for the British government was was told essentially what, you know, anyone else would be told if they asked. No, we're not in this game anymore. Uh, we had Project Bluebird. We closed it down in 1969. Uh, we're not interested. Now, when you started this particular task, full-time, part-time, whatever, did you have any particular point of view as to what might be causing UFO sightings? Absolutely not. I had no interest in this subject. I had no knowledge about this subject. I had no belief on, on the issue. And I think, in a sense, that was absolutely the best way to go into that job. I think if I'd have gone in as a believer, well, I'd probably never have gotten the job in the first place. Mm -hmm. If I had gone in as a skeptic, again, you know, I would probably not have achieved anything there because I would simply have written everything off as, as misidentifications of aircraft lights and weather balloons. So actually going in with no particular view meant that I was there with no particular agenda. And I like to think that that probably gave me an advantage. During the time that you had this tour of duty, did you encounter a lot of UFO activity in your country? We got about two or three hundred UFO reports each year. I knew, of course, through going out and speaking to people, meeting people who'd seen things um, and very often not reported them, I knew that that was the tip of the iceberg. And although we tried to set up a system which actually had been in place since the 1950s, whereby if everyone, if anyone had reported a UFO to a police station, a military base, um, an airport, those those sorts of things should be channeled back to the MOD. You know, I, I still knew that we were only scratching the surface of this. I knew that a lot of people were reporting to UFO groups and we didn't necessarily have access to that data. I knew that a lot of people were engaging with the local media. Again, we couldn't really get that. And of course, the other big point um, is that most people that see something won't report it to anyone at all, mm -hmm. uh, either because of the fear of ridicule or disbelief, 
or simply because they don't know who to contact. Did you ever feel tempted to pick up the phone and call a UFO organization or call a local police department or call a newspaper when you heard of something that might sound interesting? I did. I, 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 not, not only was I tempted, I actually did it. Um, I think that gave me a little bit of a reputation as a maverick. Um, but I very much did pick up the phone and say, for example, I remember one of the classic examples is I said, um, in Britain we've got this guy called Timothy Good who, who knows a bit about this subject and has been researching it. I want to meet him. You know? And it happened. So I wasn't afraid to be the maverick and to say, yeah, I'm going to do things a little bit differently to some of my predecessors. No one came down to you and said, Nick, you know, you're going a little too far, kind of lay off or be cool? A couple of times people said, yeah, I, I, I think you're getting a little bit too involved in this. But I, was, I like to think that I'm fairly bullish on, on this and indeed any, any issue. And I kind of said, look, you gave me this job. Let me do it. Okay, now you, you just said you're bullish on this. So, let me ask you a question that relates right to that, Nick. In your bullishness on this topic, what is perhaps one aspect of UFOs that you feel is a little out there but potentially feasible? Do you see what I'm getting at? Well, no, I was going to say, actually, maybe, maybe you could just define that a little bit. Uh... All right, all right. So, when you walk into the camp of the hardcore doe-eyed believers... You get all you get all sorts of stuff that's out there that there have yeah. been uh, long-standing cooperative relations between non-human entities and let's say rogue aspects of the U.S. military, or yeah. we have stories of you know, large-scale abductions, people being abducted over you know, sort of large amounts of time, long amounts of time, families with uh, histories of abductions running through maybe three, four generations. We, we hear about the high strangeness, high weirdness factor. When we were talking to um, Bud Hopkins recently, he brought up the issue of poltergeist-like weirdness that is uh, sort of associated with extreme UFO encounters. When you look at that sort of, uh, I'm calling it sort of the outer fringe of, of what uh, rational, reasonable stuff, Having having stated that you're bullish on this and that you were uh, sort of agnostic going in, are there any of these extreme aspects that you find maybe have some sort of validity? And I'm not saying that you know you necessarily believe in them, but things that you think may sort of warrant further investigation. Well, I think a lot of this warrants further investigation without necessarily wanting to, to sort of you know, sound like I myself am a fully paid-up true believer. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, you mentioned Bud Hopkins, for example. Actually, I think actually some of the most compelling evidence in relation to the sort of so-called alien abduction phenomenon is actually the skeptical evidence. Um, because if you look at the work of people like Clancy and McNally, even though they don't literally believe that these people have been taken into spaceships, I think they would be the first to acknowledge that in the experiments that they've done looking for 
physiological reactions uh, from abductees in terms of things like increased heart rate and perspiration. They would say, well, the, these things have been observed scientifically in double-blind experiments. And that poses the, the intriguing question, well, okay, even if we don't literally believe these people have been abducted by aliens, they're actually not making it up. They're not, the, you know, they're not after their 15 minutes of fame. Something's going on. And I think that's interesting. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey, this is Jeff Ritzman. You're listening to David Biedney and Gene Steinberg on The Paracast. And just between you and me, I think these guys are a cult, so keep your eye on them. We're talking to Nick Pope. He's studying UFOs and lots of related stuff, and he used to head the British government's UFO project. David. Well, Nick, this brings up a really important, I think, point, which is uh, perhaps one of the best-known cases out of uh, out of your part of the world was the uh, December 1980 Rendlesham Forest incident or series of incidents. We've talked about that on the show quite a bit, and in talking to uh, Jacques Vallée about this topic, he makes a very interesting point that perhaps what we're looking at in Rendlesham is not so much a UFO experience, but perhaps maybe. And I don't, I don't think he states this in, in sort of a definitive way, but maybe what we're really looking at there is uh, more of a psychop trying to see uh, to what extent soldiers' thoughts, experiences can be influenced. I mean, I, I guess this is a segue into the Rendlesham episode, but uh, given that a lot of the documentation that I'm looking at on your website does relate to this episode, what are your thoughts about it? What are the What are your thoughts of the possibility of it maybe not being a UFO episode, but something else? I'm not. I, I, I'm familiar with Jacques Vallée's work on that, and I have tremendous respect for for much of the research that he's done. On this, I think he's wide of the mark, and I'll tell you why. If you were going to do a psyop, you would put everything in place. Um, the events would unfold, I guess, pretty much as they would unfold. But the one mm -hmm. thing you then wouldn't do is actually allow there to be a public audit trail of documentation. You would actually let things run, but let things run internally. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, people would be sort of, you know, making intel reports and, and things like that. But the very last thing that you'd ever do and I say this from personal experience, um, if you were doing a genuine PSYOP, is, is sort of start firing off documents that go out of your own agency, that, that go 
sort of to a different country. I mean, that go to to the British police, that that go, you know, into the sort of situation where you get this this sort of audit trail of documents that can then be released under FOI. All right, let's continue on this topic. So we have internal documents that were generated from this episode. In in your research of this episode internally in the MOD, were there corroborating public testimonials about the sighting of these objects? I mean, I, you know, we have the rather extensive amount of documentation internally. Uh, I read the Peter Robbins book, uh, Left at Eastgate, or East at Left Gate. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little dyslexic there. But, um, uh, left at Eastgate, yeah. Left at Eastgate, okay. So uh, with that in mind, in, in the internal documentation, were there corroborating citing, uh, citing reports from people who live in the area that would back up what we heard in terms of the details of things coming down from the sky? You see what, you see what I'm asking here? Yes, very much so. Um, there are a number of uh, local civilian witnesses uh, to all of this. And, and uh, yeah, there are various places where this is out in the, the public domain. Absolutely. Okay, so then in your mind, this would solidify the idea that this was not any kind of a psychops. I, I'm absolutely, yeah. This this wouldn't be a sort of uh, psyops, and and you know one of the reasons is yeah, as as we've just discussed, because this this was actually something physically seen, mm-hmm. not just by uh, U.S. military personnel, but by uh, local British people. But but the other point, you know, as I say, if this was a psyop. There is no way, absolutely no way, that you would ever let there be a sort of audit trail of documentation going from the United States Air Force to the Ministry of Defense. And, and you know, this, this thing would have absolutely been sort of, you know, fine, tell us about this, but don't put anything in writing. Right. And, so that- and I've, you know, um, without wanting to sound like I'm the bad guy here, I've, you know, again... 21 years experience in government I've, I've kind of occasionally had a conversation where somebody has said oh I'm going to write to someone and ask him and I've said no 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 wait stop don't put anything in writing you know once you put something in writing it's subject to FOI I said you know go and go and talk to the person you know well, get well, the now, phone. <laughs> you're doing it again and I'm, I have to put you in a in a tight spot here, Nick. You, you said something again that just a moment ago, you're talking about PSYOPs and you said, you know, I know from experience. Now, if I were a more paranoid listener of this show, not that there's any paranoia in my body. Well, maybe uh, just a little well, bit. Well, looking in well, sure. Well, here, but, you know, I, I think there are people who hear that and now hear what you just said a moment ago and say, well, now, wait a minute. This guy's kind of admitting to maybe having participated in some way, to some degree, in, well, how do I put this delicately, in some sort of psychological operations that may or may not be associated with the UFO topic? No. No? All right. No, I, I think what I'm basically trying to say is, is look, 
I've done 21 years in government. There's a certain way that game is played. Yes, sometimes you don't put something in writing because you don't want to create an audit trail, but there's a long, long way between that and, and saying, you know, we've got a spaceship in a hangar somewhere. Right. You know, hand on heart, we haven't. If With, they have, sure. they didn't tell me. Okay. <laughs> so here's another question. These are things that I'm guessing, I always try to sort of put myself in the position of being a listener of the show. And I know when people listen to the show, they, they kind of wish we'd ask certain questions. And it's almost like you can feel their psychic energy. They know we're speaking with you, and, and I, I'm guessing they have certain questions. Anybody who goes to your website, hits your home page, they see a picture of you with a lovely Photoshop halo around you. And uh, we, we read, welcome to the official website for author and TV personality Nick Pope. Now, here's the thing about that. And there were a couple of comments in the comments section of your op-ed piece in the New York Times. People saying, well, of course this guy is going to present a pro-UFO stance, his livelihood depends on it. He's a TV personality talking about this topic. So what do you say to people? And I'm not saying that we're saying that, Nick, but surely this is a question you must have had to answer in the past. What would you say to someone who would question your objectivity about this topic? In a sense, I'm, I'm not quite sure what people like that would be arguing. Would they be saying that I get paid work because I say UFOs are extraterrestrial, and then I would say to to these people, I have never said that. You know, Google search on that. And if if I'm most involved with any organization, it's probably the Coalition for Freedom of Information. And I would say the interesting thing about CFI is that they deliberately don't take any Mm. position on the true nature of the UFO phenomenon. So actually... I don't think I've got any agenda at all, really. I I just say that I I don't know what UFOs are. I've been 21 years in government. I'll tell you the one thing that I always look for that to me says pay attention to this person. I look for the person who says I don't know. If I ever find someone who says, yeah, I know everything, I'm suspicious. Well, we got a letter from somebody the other day, by the way, who wrote in, and we have this form letter we send out to people who participate in our forums, and it says, come back, we miss you, that kind of thing. And someone writes back and says, I've been investigating UFOs for 60 years. I know the answers. I have the proof. Goodbye. Wait, now, now, well, now, hold on. Gene, here's the part that you'll find interesting. You didn't respond to that guy, right? No. I did. Because I looked at his name. I'm not going to say the name on the air. I looked at his name and I thought, well, that sounds familiar. And it turns out the guy's uh, not a real famous musician, but in certain circles, he's kind of known. And I thought, oh, now that's kind of interesting. And I wrote him back and I said, hey, well, I'm curious to know what you think about the true nature of these things. And I got this really long response, a very involved email from this guy. And, oh, my God, it was it was quite something. And it all came down to uh, he's a Bible thumper and it, it all went down the Bible route. And, you know, I mean, there were there were things in there like. I have also concluded, I'm looking at the email right now, I have also concluded that there is no life anywhere else in the universe. And I thought, okay, shut the door on that one. So the Earth was created 6,000 years ago. 
Let's not go into it. Because, but so I'll, I'll forward this email to you. Uh, okay. It was something else. Nick, by the way, we uh, I, I think one of the reasons that we definitely like you is that you've just sort of said the, the core issue. You've addressed it, which is that the minute anybody says that they have the answers about this topic, you kind of know that they're not trustworthy. You kind of know that they're, they're off in their own reality, and uh, the, they don't even want to hear any kind of debate about what this may or may not be. They, exactly. Their minds are made up. Well, you know what, Nick, I wanted to raise a question because during your tenure at the head of the UFO project of your country, did your interest in the subject undergo some kind of evolution? You started, it was an interesting assignment when you left, and did you leave on your own volition? Was your tour of duty up or what? Yes, I, I'd done three years. Actually, I got promoted but even if I hadn't have been, it would have been time to have left on a level transfer anyway. So there's, there's nothing suspicious there, even though there's probably a zillion conspiracy theories on the Internet saying he was moved because he was getting too close to the truth. Do, um, do, 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 do. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. Okay, so um, that didn't happen, but how did your viewpoints change over this three-year period? Did you find yourself much more interested before you left than when you started? Yeah. Yes, I did. Um, you know, I think having access to the back catalogue, as it were, of, of UFO sightings um, inevitably made me think, well, hang on, you know, when I've seen this subject discussed, I don't know, in the media, it's been done in a sort of silly, you know, woo-woo way. This is all just stuff and nonsense. And I, I thought, hang on a moment, wait a minute. You know, we've had these things seen by police officers, um, commercial airline pilot, Air Force, uh, military Air Force pilots. They've been tracked on radar. We've had speeds and maneuvers going way beyond anything we can do. We've looked at some of these things through, you know, with the, the sort of technical specialists. Uh, they've done their analysis, their enhancement. Um, you know, there's a little bit more to this than meets the eye. So I've done all this, and I've thought, yeah, actually, you know, I'm not quite as skeptical as I was when I went into this job. And even if I'm not a fully paid-up believer in little green men, I at least think there's something here worthy of a second look. You know what, I want right. to ask you something because you raised that phrase. There was a phrase in your New York Times op-ed piece about little green men. Was that Nick Pope's phrase or the editor's phrase? Mm -hmm. It's really difficult. I mean, this, this whole business of the op-ed in the New York Times, I mean, this took, this took months to negotiate getting this piece in. I can't remember the ins and outs and I can't remember the various different edits. I do occasionally use that phrase. I don't use it to kind of downplay this subject. I don't use it to disparage people who believe in an extraterrestrial reality. I do occasionally use it sort of sociologically to say that this is what people believe. Okay, All right. at the end of it now, having left after three years of service... What did you do, what did you opt to do to continue investigating the subject? Because obviously your interest continued, obviously you continued to explore it. So where did you go from there? Well, basically, um, when you leave most 
Ministry of Defence posts, that's it. You have no further involvement in that for the rest of your life. Um, I felt that this subject was simply too interesting to just turn my back on and walk away from. So I said, look, you know, I I have no answers here. You know, I'm I'm not some sort of expert. I'm just someone who's dipped my toe in the water. Um, I'm interested by it, but I, I, I don't have any great truth to sort of unpack to people. Um, but I want to keep my hand in. I want to, you know, I want to stay involved in this. I want to, you know, I met some very good friends in relation to this. I, I said, yeah, I don't want to walk away. And that's that's where I came from. Along those lines, when you were doing this investigation work, Nick, what kind of things and again, I'm kind of going back to this to try to pry a little bit more information out of you. But in in digging up, for example, military reports, military documentation, and I, I assume that part of what we're talking about are civilian reports that were sent to the military. What Was there any one report, was there any one sighting that sort of uh, leapt out at you because it, it sounded odd? Yes, we had a really interesting case in um, March of 1993. So this was pretty much midway through my tour of duty. And we had an incident where UFOs were being reported by people all around the country, various different regions. And, you know, I investigated this. I looked at the radar data. We didn't really know what was going on. But, um, yeah, at the, the, the end of it, I, I felt that something was happening here. Something was going on in our airspace that I couldn't understand. I couldn't define in, in sort of conventional terms, such as aircraft, weather balloons, you know, meteors, etc., etc. What about the topic of secret military projects? And, and again, realizing that you had a certain level of security clearance, we wouldn't ask you to compromise that. But were there reports that came in where you did some internal investigation and were basically told, oh, no, that's one of ours? No, there weren't. And that's quite interesting. Of course, you're correct. At any given time, there will be things flying around in our airspace that we won't see for, you know, five, ten years at the big military air shows and things. Um, so, you know, that was absolutely taken as read. But I didn't ever feel that I was dealing with, with, you know, with some of the more interesting UFO sightings. I'd never feel that I was dealing with something, look, this is a black project, back off, um, it's hmm. one of ours. Huh. Hey, before we continue with this, we're going to switch to our number two of the Paracast with Nick Pope. Joining us, he was, for three years, heading up the British government's UFO project. And if you want to find out more information about what he does, go to nickpope.net or click on his name on the Paracast website. We'll have more on the other side of the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries. 
to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockaways. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yedding. Nick Pope returning with us on part two of the Paracast. Uh, we've been exploring a lot of ground for three years. He headed up the British government's UFO research project, but after he became a civilian, he came to write several books on UFOs, what motivated you, other than being a best-selling author, of course? Well, I think I, I felt that these were subjects too interesting to turn my back on. I, I simply couldn't walk away from any of this. Got I, sucked I felt, in like the rest of us. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I felt that, that, you know, I looked and I saw people in government, in military, in the intelligence agencies who'd been involved in things, within the confines of their security oaths, I, I saw a number of people who said, look, I've got really kind of interesting stories to tell here, things that I think are genuinely in the public interest. You know, we need to get this out in terms of freedom of information, um, open government, whatever. And I thought, well, I've got I've got some interesting stories to tell here, too, um, and I'd like to tell them. And so that's what motivated me to, to write. I just thought, I've got, you know, I've done some stuff here which I think people would be genuinely interested in. So you have a book called The Uninvited, which is also the name of a great classic, uh, really bad John Carradine science fiction movie. Won't go to that because there's a scene there where he goes, "The gland, it's the gland," and that's. I haven't seen that one. Oh, it's a classic, the gland. Even uh, worse than one of those Ed Wood movies. Oh man, it's right up there, it's, and it's got Tor Johnson. Uh, On the other hand, it sounds like it's, it's got Tor Johnson, who, who at one point there's a time for go to bed. That was the, my my shutdown sound on my Mac for years, but okay. So you've got this book, The Uninvited, Nick, and um, there are in this book six cases that you specifically highlight and go into detail on. What might be an example of one of these six cases that our listeners would not have heard of if they hadn't read The Uninvited? Gosh, you, you've got me at a bit of a disadvantage there because I, I must say it's it's been almost 10 years since I wrote that book. And I, haven't, I haven't actually given it much thought for a while but actually it's a really interesting question because yeah what I wanted to do was get away from all the big sort of alien abduction cases that everyone's heard of like Travis Walton, Whitley Strieber and whatever and I wanted to pick on some some British cases that people absolutely wouldn't have have come across and and the other thing is that one often hears in relation to alien abductions that there's some sort of set pattern to this, you know, that certain things happen. What I've discovered in my research and investigation is that actually it's, it's 
considerably more bizarre and abstract than most people would have in mind. Um, mm -hmm. So, again, you know, what I'm saying to you is I don't have the answers here. I genuinely don't. I'm not sitting here saying, I'm going to tell you guys what alien abduction is. Bottom line, I don't have the faintest idea what it is. But what are the, I guess then, if we're talking about abduction specifically, what are the elements of abductions, let's say, in, in the UK versus the United States that are similar? But are there, along those same lines, are there any details that are different that might reflect some kind of a cultural element that would sort of support the idea that perhaps there's more of an, uh, sort of a, a back and forth in what these things are. Uh, one of the topics we talk about a lot on the Paracast is the effect of people's perceptions on the different types of phenomena that, that exist in the paranormal realm. And so, you know, there are long discussions about the appearance of small beings over hundreds of years. You have elves and fairies, and, you know, part of this is that, well, maybe these things are actually some kind of a, a reflection of the cultural standards of the time, and maybe that explains some of what we see as far as the evolution, for example, of the looks of the beings. Um, are there any elements in the cases that you looked at that were, that were UK-centric that would seem to sort of support that notion of a, some sort of a cultural bearing on even the visual look of these things, or were they largely similar to uh, the kinds of things we read about that occur in the United States? Well, I think that's, that's a really interesting question. I think that the thing that leaps out at me from what you've just raised is, is what I would call the, the U.S. dependence, possibly over-dependence, on regression hypnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure we could do a whole sort of two-hour show on, on that one topic alone. It's a good um, sequel because we had Bud Hopkins on last week's show, and we were talking oh, right. about well, stuff that comes forth during regression. So I am very well, interested in your point of view. Well, Bud's a good friend of mine. We don't necessarily agree on every last detail of, of, of this, but I have tremendous respect for the work that he's done, and he's, he's one of the true pioneers in, in this field. Um, my view is that regression hypnosis is not a sort of magic key to the truth. I do not believe that if someone is, is regressed hypnotically and they say, this happened, that, that that's somehow sort of, you know, um, absolute take-it-to-the-bank fact, signed, sealed, and delivered. I think that the human mind is a very, very complicated thing. I don't think any of us truly understand it. You know, that said, I'm not saying that any of, of this alien abduction phenomenon is automatically attributed, as skeptics sometimes like to portray, to, to sort of, you know, I, I don't know, fantasy-prone personality, um, childhood sexual abuse, etc., etc. Well, there's one thing that Bud Hopkins mentioned, which is the bookend phenomenon, which is that these things that are recovered through regression are preceded by or followed by things that have conscious memories in the recipients. They remember these consciously where they first started seeing a UFO where 
the UFO may have departed, maybe they're in their car two hours later and they have missing time. That's the beginning and end of the case, which are in themselves sufficiently anomalous, even if we forget what might have happened during this alleged abduction. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, again, Bud has been doing this for decades and he knows, um, you know, much, much more about this than than I do. Um, I hope that I'm not one of these people that comes across as saying, yeah, just because I did this to the government, I know all the answers. Actually, as I say, you know, uh, many, many times what I'm saying is I don't know. And it may well be that people in the, in the, the civilian community, the UFO research community, know far more about this than I do. And I'm, I'm you know, willing to be taught by them. It's incredibly interesting. Um, I'm always wary of dogma, whether it's sceptical or believer dogma. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, I think that whatever the true nature of this phenomenon or these phenomena, they, they should be subject to serious scientific investigation. You know what bothers me also about the abductions is the possibility that there is some government psychological experimentation. I mean, we know the U.S. government has done some things that haven't been too pleasant over the years, and maybe you're maybe have your suspicions about hypnotic regression using drugs and hypnotic sessions. We wonder what people can be taught to remember. I, I understand where you're coming from with that, but but again, I, I come back to the point, as I mentioned in relation to Rendlesham Forest, that if this was some sort of internal psychological you know, experiment, if, if we were dealing with a PSYOP, in my experience of all this, it would go so far, but then no further, because somebody would say, yeah, don't worry, guys, this is one of ours. Um, don't put that into writing. Don't make an official report. Okay, so you're skeptical of the use of regression therapy. If there are buried memories of some kind of paranormal encounter, how do we recover them? If not regression medication, what? Again, the honest answer, I don't know. I, I'm not a psychologist. and I, I think, um, actually, speaking from the heart, what I would say is look at your dreams. I've dabbled in psychology. The one thing that I do know is that very often what we feel and what we genuinely really think when we strip away all, all the sort of you know things that society puts on us is actually if you dream something, that's what you really think. So, yeah, I would say without wanting to sound like too much of a new age hippie, look at your dreams. All right. So here's a question for you. Um about a topic that we're going to be talking about with an author and a researcher, Robert Hastings, who has done a lot of work on investigating the tie between UFOs and nuclear facilities. He's, he's done some really interesting work along these lines, Nick. So a question for you. In the research you were doing at the Ministry of Defense, did you find occurrences of UFO sightings seen near nuclear-related installations? I'm sorry, that's really not an area that I can get into a sort of public discussion on. You know, the the, the whole nuclear issue is, is just so sensitive, that's, that's not something I can discuss publicly. Hmm. Okay. 
Uh, then let's uh, let's play another game here. I'm going to throw some names out to you. Tell us the first thing that comes into your mind, please, if you can. Okay. Gary McKinnon. Again, pending court case. So I know in America under the First Amendment that you can kind of discuss this, but in in the UK, particularly given the job that I had, I wouldn't want anything I said to be seized upon by either, you know, his, you know, the prosecution or the defense. So I'm afraid that's not something I'm going to discuss. Okay. Stephen Bassett. Nice guy. I've met him. Obviously, I've appeared at a couple of his, his conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my own view on how to present this subject better to the public, to the media, maybe even to the the sort of internal government community is is that it might be better to to kind of take the approach that the Coalition for Freedom of Information has taken, which is actually the, the sort of we take no position on the true nature of the UFO phenomenon. So the fact that he has very strict, very carefully expressed beliefs about what he thinks is causing it, do you think that works against the subject? I think sometimes it does. I think if if you put yourself up as somebody who purports to know all the answers, and if you put yourself up as, as sort of, you know, yeah, this is actually what's going on, um, there's a cover-up, there's a conspiracy. But if you look at the Coalition for Freedom of Information, if you look at what they're saying, it's actually quite sort of neutral in terms of bottom line. We don't know what this is. And I think people arguably identify with that a little bit more. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the podcast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners Okay, we do know on the Paracast that we have Nick Pope, three years heading the British government's UFO research project, author of several books on the subject. We have links to the nickpope.net site on the Paracast. Okay, so what about the 
word disclosure. Does that irritate you? It does. Um, I think you can spell the word with either a small d or a capital D. That's the impression that I get, certainly here in the UK. Disclosure actually implies there's something to disclose. So when it's discussed, very often it's discussed in the context of, of there being what I think I sort of described earlier as, as a sort of smoking gun, a, a spaceship in a hangar somewhere. You know, so people say, when are we going to get disclosure? which in that context means when are you lying so-and-sos in government going to tell us what you really know about all this? And I don't think that's the way to go. I honestly don't. Well, okay. So that then forces me to utter the name Stephen Greer. Well, um, if you, I guess, Google him and, and my name, you'll find that Actually, I, I was one of the people that that uh, signed up to be one of the disclosure witnesses. Right, I know. Not, not because I felt that there was a cover-up and there was something to disclose, but because I felt I wanted to perhaps say, look, this is who I am, this is what I've done, this is where I worked, and everything I can say, actually, I can back up. Um you know, so so when I talk about a UFO case, I can send you a hyperlink um, to the case file on the MOD website, uh, where I claim to, you know, when I say that I worked for the British government and I investigated UFOs, I don't say, but they'll never admit this because it was 27 levels above top secret. What I actually say is, well, call the MOD press office, they'll, they'll know me. Hmm. Okay. Have you had interactions with Bruce Maccabee? Yeah, I've met Bruce a couple of times. Um, seems to be a nice guy. I don't really know him that well. Um, but yeah, I've met him. You've, have you looked at any of his uh, analysis work of photographs? Yes, I have. But um, again, this is where it gets quite interesting and where I hope I don't sound like, uh, you know, too much of a sort of person that knows it all. Actually, what I always say is I don't know it all. So when I'm confronted by people like Bruce and by some of his, his sort of scientific and technical analysis, what I actually always say is, um, yeah, I don't understand that. I'm not an expert in it. I don't know. Well, that's honest. Is there a, in, in the UK, is there the uh, sort of an image processing analyst who would be the equivalent of Bruce over there? Is there such a person? Well, yes, there are certainly people in government who, as you would expect, I mean, government gets all sorts of imagery all the time. Uh, of course, there are people who, uh, you know, um, look at such things and say, well, you know, yes, I think this is real. No, I think this is a fake. Yes, I think this is this big. No, I think that's that big. Um, so yeah, that's that's there. Um, I've liaised with these people. I'm not. I don't share any of their technical expertise. I couldn't dream of of replicating the sort of stuff that they come up with. At the at the risk of having you hang up the phone. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, yes. <laughs> uh, well, you might, but I, I kind of have to just utter the name. And again, looking for your first thing that comes to your mind. I know what I feel about this, but here we go. David Icke. Uh, well, <laughs> well, I actually went along to one of his lectures. Um, ah, here we go. Uh, about three or four weeks ago at a place called the Brixton Academy. Um, he's a very bright guy. You know, I honestly, hand on heart, have no way, absolutely no way of evaluating some of the material he comes up with. We have this really, really interesting phrase in Britain that we use in the kind of intelligence analysis community. And the phrase is this, interesting if true. <laughs> oh, yes, I, I've, heard you utter, no, I've heard you utter that more than a couple of times. Ah, now, so that's good. I, yes. Actually, that's another of Paul Kimball's favorite ones. I, <laughs> I, I think I've, I've kind of chatted to Paul Kimball about that one. And he, yeah. he kind of liked that. But you know what? Interesting if true is something that I deploy time and time again when I come up against this sort of thing. Because what else can I say? I don't know. I'm going to ask you something here, which is, of all the sightings you've investigated, read about, written about, whatever, if someone were to say, show me one case that clearly demonstrates that UFOs are anomalous in some fashion, would you have a specific case to refer to? It probably would be Bentwaters, Randlesham, and it probably would be because people like Jim Peniston could point to things like his notebook because people like Chuck Holt could could kind of um, you know pull out various documents transcripts that that actually you know it's not just him this is this is kind of official stuff. Hmm. In terms of weird UFO cases that have credibility, and is that the weirdest, or do you have some others that seem to have all sorts of strange things going on? But still, they're compelling enough to warrant further study. Anything else you might suggest? Well, there was a, a classic case from from last year. Again, I, I'm sure you've heard of this guy. I don't know if the case has been dissected uh, line by line, but Captain Ray Bowyer, a commercial airline pilot here in the UK, who who basically saw two UFOs, uh, which he estimated as being about a mile long. Uh, each of them, and uh, yeah, he made an official report. Uh, he was speaking to air traffic control, and this is the really, really fascinating thing: the, the transcript of the conversation between him and air traffic control is not actually classified. It's not secret. It's out there, and uh, it it kind of speaks to the reality of this incident. Hmm. So that, that, in a way, that's a kind of a definitive piece of proof as far as you're concerned. Well, it doesn't prove that any of this is extraterrestrial, but it's... No, just anomalous. It, absolutely. Absolutely. Nick, one of the things on your website that uh, made my eyebrows kind of go up when I originally uh, clicked on it, you, you have a page on the crop circle situation. Now... I realize this is a really strange and in some ways it's a delicate topic um, given that there has been such a, a large amount of activity around this and 
this has been going on for years. Uh, at the same time, there have been some pretty clear cases of people coming forward and saying, yeah, we did these. Now, I don't know that people would expect to see a page about this on your website. Tell us about this. What's your interest in this topic, and what do you think about this? Well, my interest in this really date from the fact that um, people were genuinely postulating that the, the the kind of whole crop circle phenomenon has its roots in in some sort of Ministry of Defence secret project. Mm-hmm. And I said, honestly, hand on heart, to the best of my knowledge, that's not the case. But if it is, I want to know about it. Right. Um, so that was how I got into it. And I said, look, yes, of course, um, let's have an intelligent discussion. Let's have a debate about this. And But there were people out there who were genuinely believing that these sorts of things were were, were kind of attributable to sort of MOD space-based laser weapons. Hmm. And and that's where it's got, you know, really bizarre. The idea that um, A, we would have such a thing, and B, if we did, that we would test it over, right. you know, farmers' fields as opposed to our own uh, land. And the Ministry of Defence owns more land in the UK than anyone else except the Crown. Hmm. In the uh, in the Warren book about the the, the Bentwaters Rendlesham episode, there are some aspects of it that um, just are are extremely bizarre. Where we hear talk of some kind of an underground facility where people were taken to be debriefed, and were shown things that I know that when I read the book, and I read some of this, I thought this just sounds silly. Was there an attempt to sort of muddy up? the recollections of Rendlesham and was there some amount of uh, recounting of this these three days that perhaps you think might have been tampered with? Honest answer again I don't know I've seen no direct evidence to suggest that anyone has been deliberately tampered with you know thrown off the scent whatever Mm -hmm. that said as I said in an earlier part of the show, it's absolutely undeniable, uh, and, and you can probably find documents on the MOD website to suggest that the subject has been consistently downplayed over the years. Um, but again, there's a difference between downplaying a subject and, say, covering up some great sense right. of truth. Right. So. You see what goes on in the media with the discussion of these topics where we have, quite frankly, a circus environment. Certainly that's true here in, in the United States. Yeah, uh, true here too, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, we might have even inherited that from you. Gee, thanks. Uh, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-K. 
Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Airy Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.eerieradio.com. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Did we also um, inherit from them the fact oh. that we break for commercials and say that Nick Pope joins us and David is now formulating a very deep question about the UFO field? Well, no, well, no I'm, I'm just wondering, Nick, what do you think about methods to try to create a more lucid, rational conversation around this? Uh, we do have this polarized environment. Uh, there were three, I think it was three consecutive Friday nights where uh, the talk show host, Larry King, uh, did these um, these specials regarding this topic, and there was a good amount of frustration on the part of those of us who are interested in looking at these things logically in terms of having very credible witnesses come on and then having uh, uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy uh, get on there and just make a complete ass of himself. It was very frustrating. Uh, I, given your association with Leslie in trying to you know create a more rational sort of a tone around this. Do, do you think it's possible, given the way the media treats this topic? Yes, I think it is. I mean, I, I've been on Larry King Live twice. Um, I think, actually, Larry's one of the great heroes um, in this subject in terms of, of, you know, taking it into the mainstream and being somebody in the public eye who is prepared to kind of say, yeah, okay, let's have a serious, intelligent conversation about this. Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't know what your broadcasting rules are in the States. We we have a few here. You generally have to have balance, so maybe that's why you have to have these these kind of skeptic guys on. It's interesting. Sometimes the, the believers say, oh, it's terrible these guys are on. Sometimes, actually, it's really good because, because you know, they're actually kind of a little bit sort of we don't know our stuff. We're just here to debunk it. I think people see through that. I'd say that was probably true in the recent episodes that had Bill Nye. I think he, he ended up really not looking too good in the end. Of course, uh, my own perception of it was from a point of view of being someone who uh, perhaps look at, looks at this topic in different ways. Now, now, you were on the Larry King show twice. What were the specific uh, episodes or topics, I guess, that were being discussed? Because usually they um, focus on a specific episode or sighting. Yes. The last time I was on um, the show was in May when the, the, the big hook for the story was the Ministry of Defense releasing um, the first batch of its UFO files. And, and that absolutely was a, an international news story with with sort of, you know, literally two million downloads of this material within a couple of weeks of it being released. So that was that was one. The second one, I think I was doing a, a piece on Rendlesham, and I was on with people like Chuck Holt and Jim Penniston. Mm-hmm. I think I actually saw that episode, and there was some fascinating testimony. I mean, 
Well, I just qualify this when I bring up the, the, the Bentwaters Rendlesham issues, Nick, and that I suspect that this was a very solid case based on on my uh, my own sort of reading about it. And I wouldn't say doing investigation, uh, active investigative work into it, just, you know, from a point of view of a lay person who's interested in this topic, looking into it, there, there seemed to be a lot of things about it that were, were very curious. Now, along those lines, though, what I, what I mentioned before was that at the same time that there was some very interesting, very questionable issues in terms of things we want to ask questions about, there was also a good amount of sort of noise that was thrown at it. And and we saw the same thing here regarding the O'Hare episode, which is um, what you, I believe, opened the New York Times op-ed piece with. You know, there was a, a huge amount of media interest, um, and that was the first time there, there had been some serious media interest in a UFO episode here in the States in, in years. There was some ve- very solid reporting around it, but at the same time, there was some distractionary stuff that was thrown up to sort of, um, I don't know, muddy the waters. And this is something that, you know, we, we see time and time again. We see these interesting episodes like O'Hare, but then we, we sort of see some backpedaling. We see some shenanigans go on. And in, in the O'Hare case specifically, uh, there was some image processing stuff that uh, a very good friend of the show and I were acting as a primary image image analysts on that made us realize um, that, uh, and I'm speaking about Jeff Ritzman, a friend of the show who everybody who listens to the show is familiar with. Jeff and I had done analysis work on pretty much all the images that emerged from that episode, and, and there was one that we found that was very, very interesting, but that we determined had been tampered with at a very high level. This image had been tampered with in a way to almost make it so that any other image that appeared that would look like it would instantly be discredited, even though we felt this image was legitimate. So I guess the, 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 it's not so much a question as what are your thoughts about the, I won't say lack of objectivity, just sort of the noise that surrounds this topic. And even in the case of, well, you're on the Larry King show, where the, the, um, the opening segment of those UFO episodes is sort of the this cute little sort of a childish animation of the UFOs swapping, you know, swooping down over the cows, and and they kind of put this entertainment sort of spin on it. Is that just because television? Do you think at this point is just completely about entertainment and everything has to be couched in that framework? I, I, I think it is. I mean, I think you know, speaking as a freelance journalist myself, what I would say is this. The media has to do two things. It has to entertain, but it has to to inform too. And um, I I think one can look at all these stories and and sort of say, well, how does this dynamic fit in? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you get these, these sorts of situations where things sound a bit funny, it doesn't necessarily mean... Uh, as I think some diehard conspiracy theorists think, that there's some concerted campaign to, to just knock this off the political agenda, uh, whatever. It, it's just the nature of the beast. How do we go about changing the beast? Well, this is where I'm going to sound really arrogant, and I honestly hope <laughs> I don't. But Arrogance, by the way, is always acceptable on the show. We have plenty oh, of that ourselves. Okay. I mean, we do a show that's got to be arrogant. Okay, I'll go with it then. Um, 
you know, people often say to me, Nick, how can we break through this? There's a big media conspiracy. They'll never run anything on this. And I say, look, that's nonsense. I say, I am a freelance journalist myself. I write whatever I want to write. Uh, I'll pitch stuff. If it's good enough, it'll be commissioned. If it's not good enough, it won't be. I didn't get into the New Times because there was some sort of secret agenda. I got into the New York, New York Times because basically I kind of pitched an interesting idea and, and then managed to write about it coherently. You know, So what I say to people is, don't think there's some big media conspiracy to make sure that the, you can never have some sort of positive uh, mention of UFOs. That's nonsense. There isn't a kind of bar on that. I've done it. I've written it. Well, at the same time, you're someone who held a government position, who has high visibility. Perhaps you brought a certain amount of credibility to the table that was built in. Yeah, but if they wanted to say, look, actually, you know, you're, you're the minority report here, they would have said that, and I wouldn't have gotten in. Hmm. Hmm. Has there been any opportunity to write a piece like this for the UK media? Yes, absolutely. I've written for uh, most of the best-selling national daily newspapers here in the UK. I've written for The Times, which I guess in terms of its, its kind of um, sort of, you know, bearing is, is the equivalent of the New York Times. Uh -huh. I, uh, I've, I've written for The Times. I've written for The, the Sun, The Daily Mirror, The Telegraph. I've, you know, I've written for most of, of this country's national daily newspapers. I don't make a big deal of it because I'm not trying to boastful about it, but I'm just saying, look, there's not some sort of conspiracy of silence where you can't get these stories in. Actually, you can. All you have to do is pitch them. Why so, do we always get this great emphasis then on the wacky in terms of UFOs or even anything related to the paranormal? I'm not going to get into much detail about that recent incident regarding an alleged capture of a uh, Bigfoot body. It was a terrible circus. So, you know, how does someone with a serious attitude such as yourself break through that kind of attitude? It, it's a mixture. It, it honestly is. Um, you've got to have that mixture of the contact to say, look, I want to run a, a serious story on this that isn't a silly season uh, piece. And, and there's a lot of luck, too. Um, anyone that gets published in national daily newspapers has a certain degree of luck. And um, that's the nature of the beast again. All right. I'm going to put you on the spot. Nick, you've spoken to a lot of people because of your visibility. A lot of people, I'm imagining, seek you out to talk to you about this topic. Yes. All right. And uh, we've talked on the show about how at conferences, and I've certainly known this to always be true for high-tech conferences. I've been attending them for 25-plus years. The, the most interesting things that you end up hearing, you end up hearing off a trade show floor in a room somewhere or at a bar, someone's having a couple of drinks, and that's when things start to really flow. Uh, and it's always behind the scenes that 
the more interesting aspects of people's thoughts, their concerns, their theories, their opinions, their truths emerge. Yeah. Now, okay, so you're somebody who has uh, been at a lot of conferences. I'm imagining, in fact, I, I know that there were stories about that one night at the X conference, that one Saturday night that uh, you guys were down in the bar area to some ungodly hour of the morning, like a complete wimp was asleep, <laughs> which was just sad because I, uh, I heard that I missed some good stuff that got uh, tossed around. All right, so with that all in mind, knowing that this will not be attributed to you personally, what would you be willing to share with us as some of the <sighs> wackier yet still almost believable thoughts that people had about this that were told to you in, in, in situations where no one was listening. And you don't need to name names. You don't need to, to name sh conferences. Just what kind of things did you hear that made your own eyebrow go up? And yet you maybe were standing or sitting in front of someone who you knew had a high degree of credibility, and they'd say something, and you said, what did they just say? This is the cliffhanger alert. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down 
Paracast offer, you could also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Vianney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Nick Pope on the Paracast, and we return now with his answer to David's question. What caused your eyebrows to do that Spock expression? My answer, sadly, is that that's not a particular area that I can get into. But again, you know, without wanting to sound like I've got some sort of great truth that that I'm I'm sort of you know guardian of, I I, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. Hmm. It's your witness, Gene. My questions are up. Well, I'll tell you what. Nick, let's look at some of this a little bit further. In talking to people about their UFO experiences, and this is sometimes we find this, and I've found it amongst many years of the subject, that there is a basic story about a UFO encounter. And there's a lot of other stuff going on around them, like poltergeist phenomena, stuff like that. Do you find sure. these strange sidelights or additional bits of information? Do you really have to probe to get that kind of information? No, I think I, I think there is a genuine connection between these sorts of high strangeness cases. All I'm saying is that, you know, despite my sort of 21 years working in, in government service and despite people thinking this is the guy that must know all about this, actually, uh, hang on heart, I don't. I know what I don't know. I, I think this stuff is genuinely interesting. But I'm not standing before you saying I have all the answers to this. Actually, I, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, when she was here a couple of weeks ago, Leslie Kane was talking about what their organization is seeking, which is possibly some kind of international UFO investigative body that would include the U.S. Is this something that we can realistically expect? Do you think the U.S. can be persuaded to get involved in something of this nature? Yes, I think so. And of course, the, the reason that I've discussed Leslie Kane in the course of this interview is is that I'm actually one of the consultants of um, Coalition for Freedom of Information, CFI. You know, I genuinely believe that what Leslie's uh, working for here is sort of very important, very high profile, um, and I think it's it's something that everyone should sign up to. Okay, so the next step is how do we persuade the good old USA with all the political stuff going on, which is always pretty wacky anyway, to engage in anything like this and take it seriously? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, we have to get through the election. Uh, I, I think at the moment, so much is configured on the election that these issues simply are going to uh, be peripheral. So step number one is let's let's get through this, see where we are politically. And then step two is, okay, once we've gotten through that, uh, then let's see who the political big hitters are. Then let's take it forward. Mm. 
There are many people in the States, uh, Nick, that are very frustrated at this point with the political system um, in this country. And there are many people. Yeah. (laughs) Well, a lot of people uh, feel that no matter who, quote unquote, wins, that really not much is going to really change. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, by the way. Well, parenthetically, David, the perception is that no matter what differing viewpoints the politicians express, when they get into office, they just do the same old thing all over again. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, we always try to sort of steer around the political issues, even though, you know, Nick, in talking with you, obviously, politics has to play a role in this conversation in many ways. I, I think it does. You you can't, you know, I, I try to stay neutral, but inevitably, I've served 21 years in government. You can never, ever, ever strip politics out from anything. Yeah. Uh, I would strongly agree with that. And, of course, the problem then is that talking about politics on any kind of a paranormal show turns us into the conspiracy show. And and we've we've worked very hard not to let that happen. But let's just play this. Let's let's model this for a moment. So, all right, here we are. We've got the Republicans and the Democrats, and there's a strong feeling that the Democrats will, you know, sort of win the White House back and... Okay, great. Do you really think that's going to change any of the work that CFI is doing? No, it probably won't. I think most of, most if not all, of anything that's going to go on is going to go on a, a, a sort of back-channel basis. So I don't think um, any of this is, is going to be sort of, uh, you know, front-page news. Even when but, politicians are quoted as saying something, I think Clinton at one time, even Jimmy Carter had said, that he's going to look into the UFO situation. It never seems to happen. Well, no, that, that's true. And then, of course, you've got more, much more recently people like Fife Symington, you know, former two-term governor of Arizona, sort of saying, you know, yeah, okay, I debunked this UFO incident, the Phoenix Lights in 1997, but actually, you know what? I saw it too. Yes, but in the case of Symington, to be very fair about it, Governor Symington was kind of drilled out of office because of a legal problem. And yes, he was pardoned by President Clinton and all that, but he has that stigma attached to him. So if he gets too far afield with this, he can always be shut down. But I think there are other people in that situation, too. I I think one can point to other people in you know, the the sort of government, military, intelligence community, you know, who talk about this issue. Uh, Nick, in all the people you've spoken to about these topics, people involved in the field, who are the two people that you personally feel are doing some of the most constructive work? And I was going to ask you who are the two people you feel perhaps are uh, creating problems, but I'll let you choose that as an optional response, given that you seem very politically correct. <laughs> Who are the two people that you would say are, are really being productive and maybe are sort of showing the way to handling this? And you can't respond with uh, Leslie Kane. She can't be one of the two. Oh, well, she was going to be. So I know. Um, I'm not sure I like I'm not sure I like my answers being constricted in this way. Um, you know, well, so, that also was you know, an answer. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm just going to disregard your kind of parameters and say that the first everyone else does. 
Join the yeah. club. There you go. Well, right, why not? Why should, why should I go with this? Um, That's right. First person, absolutely, is Leslie Kane, investigative journalist, somebody who's done more than most people to kind of put this issue in the public domain. So, sorry, disregarding you there. But, um, <laughs> I do that all the time. He hangs up the phone on me, but he doesn't do it yeah. with guests. I've always tempted yeah. a few guests that we've had, but that's another story. So, yeah, number one, okay. Leslie Kane, absolute hero in this subject, somebody who's done more than most to kind of, you know, keep it in the public eye, but in a non-judgmental way. Number two, Fife Symington. You know, again, somebody who kind of debunked this and then actually was truthful and honest enough to step up to the plate and say, no, you know what, actually, I saw this. I saw this myself. What do you feel, though, about the way he handled this when it originally happened? I mean, I have to tell you honestly, when I watched um, Beyond the Blue, I, I got furious at Symington. I, I wanted to, to just... You hit the delete button on him. I, I honestly, you know, my take on this is that, you know, he's a politician and that's what they do. Yeah, politicians lie. I mean, we know all about that in this country. Well, I think anywhere in the world we know about this. Well, they, they basically, they don't speak truth. He was caught in a very, very diff difficult position. I mean, how, how much more difficult could it be not only to kind of, you know, maybe have to downplay this subject, but at the back of your mind to sort of think, well, not only do I have to kind of downplay it, but I saw it. Hmm. Well, that brings up an issue of integrity. I mean, which it look, it, it, it's idealistic, you know, to think that politicians have any integrity. Uh, leads you down a very rocky road. Bottom, you know? bottom line, I've met the guy. Um, yeah. yeah, I probably wouldn't have played it the same way he played it, but I honestly believe he does have integrity. I respect the guy. Where do you think this is all going, Nick? I mean, do you think we'll ever have the possibility of understanding what this is all about? I honestly don't know. I mean, some of your question arguably kind of, you know, predicates the idea, is there some big kind of fact to disclose? And um, I honestly don't know. I absolutely have no idea. If there is, they didn't tell me about it. Um, and that's disappointing, at least from a sort of ego point of view. Well, no, maybe um, they didn't know. I, I think that, that this all points to... I mean, my personal belief in government secrecy regarding this topic is that they don't know the answers and they don't want to demonstrate that they I, don't know. I absolutely agree with you 100%. I think you've, you know, in that one comment, I think you've probably kind of come from where I've been sort of trying to get for the last sort of two hours. I absolutely don't think government has the faintest idea what this is. I think they think this thing is, you know, real. Something's going on. It's in our airspace, seen by our pilots, tracked on radar. But mm -hmm. bottom line, like you just said, we don't have the faintest idea what this is. And that's not a position that government is comfortable in. Government doesn't like to say the one thing. I've been there for 21 years. The one thing they don't like to say is we don't know. Right. 
they, they worse sort it's of happening than it can cause also panic on the part of people who expect that the government is defending us against aerial invaders and certainly things like this, things of this nature, they are aerial invaders, if nothing else. Absolutely. The one thing that people expect government to say is, yeah, we know about this, we're in control, we are in command, we know everything. Bottom line, actually they don't. Yeah. No, I, 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 well, to take that one step further, people talk about, well, wait a minute, let's say they have recovered crash craft. They've reverse engineered these things. I don't, I don't think that's even possible. I don't think that if we had something that was a completely foreign technology, we'd even know what to do with it. I think the problem is that people look at, for example, computer technology that we have currently, and they think it's the most amazing thing. Now, for those of us who have been involved with the computer industry for a long time, we have, shall we say, more realistic appraisals of what technology is and what it's capable of. And, and, and at that point, even where it's possibly going, and, you know, when we talk about computer technology, at this point, all of our computer technology that we all use is based on concepts that are now 30, 40 years old. Well, the only thing that's happened is that circuitry has become more and more miniaturized and software has become more and more sophisticated. But in terms of the real underlying foundations, the microcomputer that took the Apollo spacecraft to the moon is not that much different from the chips that we have now. In fact, that microprocessor, that, if, if I'm not wrong, was based on a 6502, which became the heart of the Apple II. So we're dealing with electronic computers. We have not even taken the step two optical computer circuitry, which would be a, a huge advance um, in every aspect of technology. But when we talk about, you know, for example, just bring us back to the, the topic, the idea that the government has these crashed craft and that they've reverse engineered things from them. I personally find that to be almost laughable. Well, it's I would think also, would they even know what to do with it? Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, everything that I've experienced about government is laying the question, what the heck do we do with this now? You know, <laughs> where are we going with this? It's one of the most amazing things that I've come across that people sort of talk about the demonization of government actually people sort of talk about putting government on pedestal and uh, nine times out of ten they don't have a clue so after you left the ministry of defense did someone take your place oh yes absolutely but they're not i know the name of the person i'm in occasional touch it's not somebody who's remotely interested in the subject or remotely thinks that there's anything to it. So nobody is going to get anything other than a sort of, you know, standard line off a computer. Hmm. We're just about out of time, Nick Pope. Can you tell us if you have any other publications or books or op-eds coming out in the near future? Uh, not really. Uh, my website's nickpope.net. If I've got anything coming out, I'll try and post it on that. But, but you know, like I say, what I'm talking about is not selling something. It's, it's just trying to kind of raise awareness and saying to people, I don't know what this subject is, but let's look at it in a proper scientific manner. Now, when you're 75 years old, as some of the elder statesmen UFO researchers are or more, do you still expect to be exploring this stuff? Oh, gosh. When I'm 75 years old, I hope uh, somebody will be buying me a beer and kind of 
you know, saving my place. <laughs> do you, uh, just a just personal question. Uh, are, are, do you have a family? No, I actually don't. Well, that's interesting. So you don't you don't have a wife telling you, uh, hey, you know, get get real, lay off this stuff. <laughs> I honestly don't want to go into this, but I used to be engaged to a woman who kind of was involved in in like DOD and Iran Contra and things, but that would mm. start so many conspiracy theories that I just don't want to go there. <laughs> okay. oh, we love exploring conspiracy theories, but now you see what happened here is there are going to be threads on yeah. the Paracast.com <laughs> forums. Where I've people... left a little teaser there. I don't mind. You know. <laughs> oh, well, you're welcome to come and feed more stuff, but seriously. Again, listeners, it's nickpope.net or click on his name on the Paracast.com and you'll go to the same place. Isn't that amazing how the web works? Nick Pope, it's been a fun two hours, a great two hours. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.